welcome to Legal Light, where we discuss everything e-discovery. Legal Light is brought to you by Outlaw e-discovery, the UK's leading independent e-discovery service provider, and your host Matt Altes, CEO and founder of Outlaw e-discovery. My next guest is somebody who has so many titles and accolades and jobs that this 20-second intro can't do him any justice. But we know him as Ken Malo, former chairman and owner of Omnibeer. So welcome, Ken. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Very good. Thank you. Thanks so much for coming down. Well, it's my pleasure. So, Ken, we're here to talk about um, your involvement in e-discovery. Yes. But I know that you've had a very, very busy business life. Uh, Tell us about some of those things that um, you've been up to during your lifetime. Well, it's a, you know, being a, a grown-up, almost 74, I've been doing this for a long 45 years now. And uh, I, yeah, just quickly, I started off as a, as a consultant at Deloitte, um, became a partner there many years ago. Then after a little bit as a partner, I said, I don't want to be doing this for the rest of my life. I'd rather be running my own shows. Uh, I left and ran a, a company for about four years. Um, and then I bought my own business, first owned business in 81. Um, and uh, it, it was a, a chemical business that I did three more acquisitions and put them together. Um, then there was actually a British company at the time was interested in getting into the space, so they, they bought my business and I worked for them for three years doing acquisitions for them and integrating these companies. Um, and, and then I went back on my own because I said I'm happier doing that. And, and my first deal, I was wildly enthusiastic about a company I found. Um, it was only doing maybe three and a half, four million in revenues, but it was losing a million dollars a year and I thought I could fix it. And so uh, it was in trouble with his bank. I went to the bank and says, I'm not going to put any money in, but I'll be a better management than the other guys. And they sort of forced the sale of it because so, I didn't have any money. So I, I bought a business with no money. Um, and I thought, okay, here I am, captain of industry. And then I found out just how bad a shape it was in because things like it hadn't paid its medical insurance bills and I had employees that had claims in that thought they had insurance that were walking in saying, we don't have insurance. And so all that I wound up having to you know, fix out of my own pockets and stuff because it was just not the right thing to do. I owned that company for 20 years. Um, it was a major supplier of a certain component to the military. Uh, and I got very close to people in the Department of Defense and, and some really admirable people. I quite enjoyed the whole experience and sold that business in, in about 1972, I think. Actually, it was 1992. And um, it, was, it was great success. I hate, hate to see it go, but it was a company that uh, it was getting to the point where the Army was looking at me and saying, you're a small company and we're going to give you exclusive contracts and we don't like reliance on such a small company. It needs to be part of a bigger one. So we found a partner and, and built that bigger business. So it, you know, done a lot of things during that period. But the, these companies are so far removed from e-discovery how did you get involved in e-discovery? I began to liquidate my portfolio as I got older at the end of, end of the run, and, and I said, okay, I'm going to get rid of my operating companies and become a more passive investor, monetize my assets and become a more passive investor. And I had done several kind of passive things uh, where I'd sit on boards and, and take an equity position but not be involved in it. And uh, I happened to know a guy that was a senior partner at one of the big consulting firms in e-discovery, and uh, he had a vision that the e-discovery industry should be consolidated. It, at that time, it was very fragmented. This is about 
2012-13, rapidly growing, very fragmented. He felt it should be consolidated, and so he left his firm and set out on a program to do a consolidation. I kind of was an unofficial advisor to him a little bit um, during that period, and then as he began to find the companies and put the deal together, he asked me to come on his board and become an investor, which I did, um, and that was my introduction to e-discovery. Um, I was you know, relying on he and his management team that were experts in the space and looked at it from a, a number standpoint and said, okay, this is a, a, a great rate of return, a great opportunity to consolidate and grow. So I liked the business idea, um, but was really pretty uh, passive about it. And that was that was Omnivere? It, it became Omnivere. It, uh, it was a newly formed company that uh, started out as a consolidation of three different businesses that were acquired. Uh, all closed on the 4th of May in 2014 simultaneously. Well, when we first met, um, Omnivere was known for being very aggressive with, with its acquisitions. How many did you actually end up with? How many acquisitions did, did Omnivere actually do in what cities? The, in the year after it was acquired, or after the, it was initially formed, the initial three, then there were two more in New York, uh, there was, so there were three, let's see, there's one in New York, one in Los Angeles, and one in Houston. That was the original three. Then there were two more in New York, and another one in Houston, and then a couple of small things stuck around in different places. So it must be about eight or nine transactions that were done over a 12-month period. Um, and then, as you say, something happened. What was that something? <laughs> Well, what happened was is that the, one of the significant initial acquisitions was underperforming dramatically when you really peeled back the onion, it had been sold on a fraudulent basis. Mm -hmm. uh, and it was really the, the wedge that began to cause the whole thing to come apart. Um, and it, you know, it was bleeding instead of generating cash. and, and um, the fix was pretty traumatic as it was, and the the, the financial institution that had put up uh, most of the capital to uh, pull this deal together uh, was supposed to only be in it for six to twelve months, and then they were going to find permanent capital and and so on. Uh, because of the numbers were underperforming, uh, it never could get out, and so we had uh, you know a high yield. Uh, high-rate uh, bridge financing structure that wasn't stable, couldn't get out of it, um, and so th th they had lost confidence in the CEO that had put the deals together. Uh, most of us that were equity investors recognized their equity would, had been lost by that point, um, and uh, the bank basically said, we're going to liquidate the business or you come in and run it if you want. And uh, so I took the challenge, uh, took over the company as a CEO, replaced the guy that had done the, the founding with it, uh, tried to cut costs. Uh, I did one more acquisition that I thought would add an underlying technology um, and because none of the initial companies really had a lot of core technology, so I, I bought a technology company. Um, and, but by that point, the opportunity for the consolidation was beginning to pass, and we were still struggling with fighting alligators of problems that we had inherited, and the rest of the world had marched on. So after two and a half years, I brought in a, a professional that uh, named Tony Caputo that was known in the industry, that was really a quality guy. Um, he, he ran the business for the next year and a half, or really two years, with the goal of figuring out how to either A, fix it, or get it sold to somebody else. And in uh, 
Somewhere in early 2019, it was then sold to another consolidator that had been more successful in this roll-up. And so a lot, lot, of, lot of lessons learned in it. Uh, the um, bank were providing debt, just yeah. as you say, bridging finance. How much were they in for at this stage? Uh, their initial tranche was 36 million. Wow. Uh, by this point, they were in it for about 60 million because they had financed losses. Uh, they put up the additional capital for a, an incremental uh, acquisition. Uh, plus, then they were not getting any interest on anything. So they, they probably had a $60 million exposure by the time it was sold. And, and what did they get back? Something substantially less. <laughs> <laughs> I actually know the figure, but uh. oh, do you? well, I can tell you, it's a substantially smaller figure than the sixty million. And does it still omnivid? Does it still exist in any 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 way, shape, or form today? No, I mean there's there's a block of people and 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 customers that are now part of another entity. Yeah. Um, and the uh, it was sold as assets, so the shell doesn't. Yeah, shall probably theoretically exist because there's litigation still pending from prior sellers that were involved in the fraud, um, but the assets are gone. So that litigation is still going on? It is, in fact. Our justice system moves slowly. Uh, it's been in, it, it been in litigation for about three and a half, four years. In the first year and a half, I, I counseled everybody to say, look, let's figure out if we can get the sheriff out of critical care without figuring out who shot the sheriff. We'll do that later. Mm -hmm. So try to stabilize it. And then as we begin to understand on a forensics basis exactly what had happened, th then we uh, initiated litigation against the, the sellers that had defrauded the, the company. The bank has been the primary funder of the litigation because they're the ones that lost the biggest piece of the money and they, they were defrauded. Um, and if there's any recovery out of it, which I expect there will be, uh, we, we, the litigation has gone very well. It just takes a long time. What cautionary tales would you say you learn in, in all of this? Well, a couple of lessons, and you learn them over and over again in the deal business, and this is, you know, this is one of them, where the entrepreneur that's believing in his vision becomes so emotionally involved and so enthusiastic about what he's trying to do that he rationalizes and looks beyond and, and just ignores the red flags and, and has a, a view that I can fix any problem. And that's how people get to be successful. You have to have a strength. But at the same time, if you go too far that way, then you lose your perspective. And he was counting on his investment advisor. He was counting on uh, uh, the bank. He was counting on um, you know the, his outside accounting firm that was doing due diligence, uh, all to you know red flag any real problems. Well, his investment advisor was only after, I shouldn't say only, but he was blinded by his fee. Uh, the bank wanted to close the deal and get the money to work, um, and the outside accounting firm was part, uh, defrauded that they got false records. Um, and so all of those traps were missed. Um, and his enthusiasm, wherever there were little red flags, you know, like too many people walking around the office for the size of the payroll, just in your, in your head you'd say logically, you know, there's too many people here. Uh, those were always things he could sort of rationalize away because the numbers that were presented showed a different picture. He just really wanted this deal to happen. Wanted this deal to happen. And uh, so that, that was a big, you know, kind of a big lesson that, you know, when you're, when you're a deal doer, particularly in the middle market, you know, if it doesn't apply to the guys that deal with giant corporations and so on because they all have accounting rules and auditors. But these are unaudited middle market companies. 
And when you're dealing in that marketplace, you, you have to have uh, a, a sense of the upside because that's what causes you to be attracted to the deal and to get the deal done and to give you the energy and the courage to take the risk to do it. On the same time, you have to have that inner sense of challenging your own upside theory to say, what's wrong with what I'm doing? And if you can do both simultaneously, then you stay out of trouble. Uh, you know, the guy that's all questioning what's wrong, he, he never gets a deal done because he's Mr. Negative. The guy that's all upside who doesn't have that winds up getting burned like this situation was. So that, that's kind of the, the lesson learned. It's certainly not something you want to happen when you're hoping to retire. <laughs> Get parachuted back in, having to run. Yeah, I, I know it was, it was, uh, um, it, it wasn't any fun. I mean, it's not like what you want to do. It's not your imaginary way of spending your retirement days <laughs> going in and uh, dealing with that kind of mess. Um, Mind you, something good came out of it because you and I wouldn't have met. Well, that's right. Had that not have happened. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I... I so I'm happy it happened. Well, I, I am too. I value our friendship and, and uh, I'm glad to see you're prospering and reinventing the world and I'm all happy for you. We're trying. We're trying. <laughs> um, now, I know you're involved in a lot of pro bono ro roles. Um, tell us about the ones that are closest to your heart. There's a couple of hospitals that I've been involved in as a patient over the years. Uh, and it, it, what, what I find out is that these hospitals, one of them is Johns Hopkins and one of them is Columbia Press here, Presbyterian Hospital here in New York, uh, they're both run by brilliant, sensitive, humanitarian doctors who have very limited awareness of business. And yet they're all in a big business. You know, the healthcare system in every part of the world, UK, America, and that's big, big business and complicated business. And so uh, what these entities do is that they've looked for people like me that have a pretty wide business experience and they've asked you to come on an advisory role at, at different levels and um, you know, help them with, it, with business challenges. You know, one of my one of my two hospitals is declining in its rating in the public U.S. News and World Report, and they know that they're not declining in terms of the quality. They're the best in the nation, but in digital marketing today, they've got competitors that are actively marketing, and they've always had the view that well, if we just do the best work, people will find out about us. Yeah. Today's world has changed, and so we've help them develop a marketing program to how to get their message out. And that's some of the things that business advisory boards do. And, and that's very, very satisfying to me to have a way to give back to people that help other people. It's a way to leverage things. You know, you can go out and try to help an individual and that's an important thing. But if I can help an institution do a better job helping a vast number of people, then I feel like I've really made a contribution. That's very satisfying. Well, I feel you've, you've shared so much of us already, but I'm going to ask you to share something else. <laughs> we come to that part of the show, it's my favorite part of the show, where we ask you, did you know that Ken Merlo... Before I was a businessman, I grew up on a farm in Indiana, and, and uh, I was a sheep farmer. And I just... That, that's you. That's, that's me when I was about 16 years old. And uh, that's one of the sheep that I raised. And we actually helped create a new breed of sheep out of the work we did. Um, and, and that's 
that's me. Most people don't know that. In today's world, you know, they say to me, well, what's your background? I start telling these things and they kind of glaze over and then they say, do you have agricultural skills? And I go, uh, yeah, we didn't call it that, but <laughs> the answer is yes. So that's, that's where I grew up. That's amazing. On a farm. Long way from e-discovery, isn't it? It is. <laughs> Thanks so much, Ken. Legal Light was brought to you by Altlaw eDiscovery, the UK's leading independent eDiscovery service provider. If you enjoy this podcast, don't forget to like, comment and share, and please leave us a review. For more information on our products and services, visit www.altlaw.co.uk. That's www.altlaw.co.uk.